Uh, we are celebrating this week, uh, the, the whole CLC theme is you were created by the ultimate creator. And so we're celebrating, trying to teach the kids to celebrate the God who creates. But not just the God who creates, the God who creates and then gives us his own Holy Spirit, which then makes us creative. And so we're not only expressing our love and admiration for the God who, who has created beauty, but rather also how God has imbued his own creation with a power to be creative as well. And if you didn't grow up in a, in a church basement in the 90s, you might not know what flannel graph is. And if you don't, I feel a little bad for you, but you'll experience something akin to it this morning. A flannel graph is a way of of displaying stories because with kids, visuals are important, but not just with kids, with adults as well, right? This is why Christian art is such an important, an important gift that God has given the church. If you are an artist today, I implore you in the name of the living God to use your gift for God's glory because we need art. We need art that is Christian and we need art that communicates truth and goodness and beauty. In fact, art was so important that for for thousands of years nearly, we might say, maybe not quite that, but at least a thousand, probably over that, they used to put stained glass in windows. You ever, anybody ever been to like a cathedral, a cathedral or a big church, you've seen the stained glass window? The stained glass windows were not invented or put up there to be pretty. They weren't there to be ostentatious. They weren't there to be decoration. They were put up there to communicate the story of God which is why you see scenes from the cross or scenes from the judgment or scenes from the resurrection or scenes from the apostles or even scenes from famous preachers. There was, I, was at a, I was driving past a church and I could see the stained glass window and it was a Methodist church and there was a picture of Wesley I could see. It's communicating the story to us in images and so that's what we're going to do this morning, although you will not call this beautiful, I am sure. These images hopefully will help drive the story home for you. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, the story is from 2 Kings, chapter 6, verses 8 through 25. If you just want to sit back and listen, if that's kind of how you learn, then I encourage you to do that. If you prefer to look it up and kind of follow along right where I am, I will be on page uh, 312. So this starts on 312. It's a strange story, which is why flannel graph works well for it. Of course, when you open the Old Testament, just expect strange things to kind of come out. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a bizarre story, but it's also a highly creative story, which is why I really like it. And you have to cast your mind back and imagine you lived in a time that was a little more akin to kind of maybe how you experienced, I don't know, anybody ever watch like Wild West, like John Wayne movies back in the day? Kind of channel all of that if you can, or maybe Lord of the Rings, whatever your whatever your genre is. <laughs> and imagine a time where people indeed would raid. They would come, and this is, uh, so here's a, here's a little map here to get us started. If I turn this thing on, it'd be helpful. So the world, zooming in right here to where our stories take place, right? They kind of zoom in right there. And so here we have Syria, which has at this time risen to prominence. Israel this is the total of Israel, but at this time, Israel's kind of divided. There's a civil war going on between these two, these two sections. But as you can see, Israel is surrounded by a, a bunch of other nations. And what we know about all of these nations is that all of them, not different, too different than from today, but all of these nations are hostile to Israel. And from time to time, one would rise to prominence and power. And they do what people did in those days, and that is they would mount up their armies and they would go on raids. They would swing down 
across the Jordan perhaps and come, or maybe around and come down here and they would raid a, a city, maybe Jezreel, and they would, they would burn it, they would kill, they would rape, they would take uh, women and children, especially young children, as slaves, they would take their livestock and their cattle, and so then it's time to rebuild again. This was the way of life. That's really hard for us to wrap our minds around, but this is the way of life. And so Assyria has risen, and we'll zoom in a little bit here to our story. Syria has risen, and we find out that the king of Syria is beginning to send his raiding parties down into Jerusalem. And as he is sending his raiding parties down into Jerusalem, the king of Israel is with his, with his counselors, and he says to them, I am going to take our armies, and we're going to go to such and such a place at such and such a time. Well, Unbeknownst to the king, as he is working out his own plans, and the king of Syria, as he works out his own plans, the word of God is brought to a little town, here's the town right here, Dothan, to a little town where Elisha, the man of God, lives. And Elisha is given this vision, given a word somehow, and he knows that when the king sends his armies to that place where he's going to camp, the king of Syria will already be there. And so he sends word. To the king of Israel, that things are not as they seem. We missed it, and it didn't work. He just gets it back, that's all he gets. There we go! It's a trap. You know, it was supposed to be funnier. That actually took us a lot of work. <laughs> Paul was working really hard on that. I was like, I need an image of a movie right there. Love Elijah. All right, anyway. So because Elijah, Elisha, sorry, I'm going to get those two mixed up. I'm talking about Elisha even if I mess up and say Elijah. These are two separate prophets. Elisha was originally the servant of Elijah, and he carries on his mission. Anyway, Elisha sends word to the king, and the king then is saved. And this happens not just a few times. This happens frequently. So much so that the king of Syria says, all right, that's it. We got a spy. We got a mole. We got some kind of problem. And he says to his people, which one of you dogs is for our enemies? And the servants say, none of us. None of us are involved. None of us would take their side. No, rather, there is a prophet who is in Israel who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Which is a way of saying Ladies and gentlemen, there are no secrets. What a terrifying thing. There's a prophet in Israel. What you whisper in your bedroom, he tells everybody. (laughs) That's troubling, isn't it? Uh, That's troubling. I love it. So he says to them, well, go and see where he is. And behold, he goes to, they find out that he's in Dothan, which I showed you the picture of. And so he sends his horses and chariots and Soldiers to lay siege to Dotham, which doesn't quite look like that, but you get the idea. As he surrounds the city of Dotham at night, uh, we have, you can imagine kind of the, the scene and the fear that would arise as the next morning the servant of, of the man of God, Elisha, you know, goes to the coffee pot and he begins to, you know, make a 
probably Sumatra, dark roast. Elisha's a dark roast man. Makes him uh, some coffee and, you know, he, the, the, the man of God isn't quite up yet or, or he goes and wakes him up with his coffee and they kind of all go out onto the veranda. You know, prophets always got veranda. It was just a part of the, it's part of the job. It's part of the perks. So he goes out on the veranda and they look out and there, beho- I love the way the, the way the Bible always puts, behold, there is an army of Syrian invaders. I should get them up. Here we go. An army of Syrian invaders who has come to lay siege. And, got, uh, and the servant of Elisha is, is shocked. He, in fact, seems to be the only person who really seems to understand what is happening. He says, alas, my master, what shall we do? What shall we do? Boy, because trouble has come upon them. And you can imagine, I think, just, just a little bit of the fear that might happen as a, a, an army surrounds a city. In those days, the city didn't look anything like that, by the way. The flannel graphs rarely got it white. Jesus wasn't, rarely got it right. Jesus wasn't white. There you go. Um, the walls uh, around the city may have been, there might have been a wall about this high, maybe as high as a person, to keep out wild animals, but it would not stop um, Mordor's invasion, right? I mean, it's not going to actually stop Syria. And so if you can kind of think of the situation, imagine you're in a town of a few hundred people, and you're surrounded by, I don't know, the American army, U.S. military or something like that, and you've got a couple of maybe shotguns or hunting rifles in your mate. This is doom, right? Doom. There is no hope. This is the quintessential hopeless situation. They've got a big army. You barely have a fence. You're dead. You ever felt like you were in a hopeless situation? In fact, I would encourage you as you read your scriptures to notice how often hopeless situations occur in the Bible. Because like every time you turn a page, it seems like a new hopeless situation. You know, you turn a page and Joseph's in handcuffs in jail because he was faithful to the Lord. And there for years and years and years. You turn another page and Israel's in shackles, imprisoned underneath Pharaoh's boot. You turn another page and the people of God have given in and begun worshiping a golden calf. You turn another page and we find Daniel in the lion's den. We find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You turn another page, you find Elisha in this situation. Turn another page, you find Jesus on a cross. Every time we turn the page, another hopeless situation. And yet, that never seems to end the story. The Bible just keeps on ticking. The church keeps on going. Here we are, literally 3,000 years later, telling this story again. That should tell us something. It should tell us something very powerful. It should tell us something about who God is. And I've said this and I've experienced it and so I'll say it again. We serve the God of the last minute rescue. He's the God who steps in when all lights have gone off, where you feel like you're standing on the precipice. When you feel like you're falling through the air, like the precipice is gone, like you're already doomed. Like God is the God who swoops in the last moment and saves us. So in those moments where we feel like saying, where are you, God? God says, I'm kind of waiting for you to fall a little bit more. Which isn't great news. But it's true. Sometimes we need truth. 
And so we might ask the question, why is it that God swoops in at the last? Why is it that God allows the Assyrian army to surround us before he steps in and does anything? And I have to say, it's because God desperately wants every single one of us to grow up. To become strong men and women of faith. To be creative ourselves. In fact, it's so important to God that we begin to grow up in the faith that Paul tells us beautiful, has beautiful scripture in Romans. A familiar passage, but one that seems to fit this text as well. Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Which is a hard pill to swallow. Why would we rejoice in suffering? Well, we rejoice in suffering because we know it produces endurance. And this is true. This is true of our bodies. When uh, we want to grow stronger, we have to tear our muscles. That's what happens when you go to the gym. You tear your muscles. And then your muscle comes back together stronger. This is what happens in our marriages. Any of you who are married can attest to this. There will come a time where a tearing happens. Or maybe you have a very good Christian friend. It would be very similar. There's a tearing that happens. And then we have to decide, are we going to be faithful to God and ask forgiveness and give forgiveness. But when that binding happens again, suddenly you have a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, a bond between ch- child and parent that is stronger and able to withstand more. And so we rejoice in our suffering because we know that as God pulls us apart and breaks us down, he is doing it so that he can put us back together. Because through suffering comes endurance. And through endurance Characters, and I know all you have characters already. This is a different kind of character. The kind of character that allows us to be the people who are strong enough to bear up under more and more and more. To be tougher. You ever looked at somebody and said, man, I wish I was as wise and tough as them. Like somebody that you admire. How did they get there? They got there through the hard work of whatever it was that they wanted to achieve. The same is true of our faith. We, enjo- we don't enjoy, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that it produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. And so it's an old truth, brothers and sisters, but nevertheless true that we must realize that the testing of our faith does produce steadfastness. And so we need to have steadfastness in our lives so that through that steadfastness we might be made perfect and complete and prepared to serve a creative God creatively. And that's hard, but that's why we go through these kind of times. And the servant of the man of God is looking upon this and he's freaking out. And I love Elisha, cool as a cucumber. I'm sure the kids still say that, but... Cool as a cucumber, and he seems unafraid. He says in verse 6, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Perhaps where we get verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, like a reflection in the New Testament back upon the God who looking upon an army is unfazed, unmoved, and unafraid. Wouldn't it be great to be Elisha that you could look at such a threat and say, eh, more is with me than with them. And so this clearly seems to not be true. <laughs> you can imagine the servant standing there on the veranda. Don't forget, they're on the veranda drinking their Sumatra. And as they're on the veranda drinking their Sumatra, and, and Elisha's just coolly sipping, like the servant's freaking out. And so Elisha prays. And he says, God, open the eyes of my servant. 
And God does indeed open the eyes of his servants. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, the unveiling of the host of the living God. How often the Bible calls God the Lord of hosts. And that might be somewhat of a strange phrase to us because we don't use the word hosts very often in reference to armies, but literally that is what is being said. God is the God who is the commander, the Lord of an unseen and very powerful army. We often think of God, perhaps, maybe you have that 1960s uh, kind of effeminate, uh, long-haired Jesus, or maybe you have a a God in your mind who looks kind of old and wizened with a beard, something like Zeus or something like that. But in in the Old Testament especially, God is often depicted as a young warrior. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. In fact, it's so prominent a theme that Psalm 2, 18, 24, 46, 48, 76, 89, 97, 132, and 144 are all songs about our God who is the conqueror, our God who is the warrior, our God who is the victor, our God who breaks bows and scatters armies, God who casts down the strong and lifts up the weak, our God who is stronger than any force, no matter how dire the times look. Our God is the God of armies. And as his eyes are open, I, can just, I can't even, I, I just try to put myself in the shoes of this servant who is freaking out at the Syrian army, and then Elijah says, Elisha says, let me help. And then he shows us an angel army, and I'm sure that calmed him down just plenty, right? Oh, thank you, now I feel so comforted. Right, this guy's like shock upon shock upon, like, whoa, <laughs> what are we gonna do with this? And it should Give us a life lesson, I think, in that sense, because I, I, just, I, I thought as I was reading the stories, thinking about how Jesus talks about us accepting the kingdom like a child, like take on the attitude of a child, and there seems nothing more childlike than, uh, than arguing on the playground about whose dad can beat up whose dad. Anybody do that? Well, your dad's the biggest. Congratulations, right? Our God is the God who steps in, and here he reveals that he has been there the whole time. It wasn't like Elisha said, oh, God, now send 10,000 angels to rescue us. No, Elisha says, God, open the eyes of the person next to me so that he might see you have been here the whole time. That, too, is a powerful word, a powerful word. All right, Uh, so the Syrians, as they have arrayed themselves against Dothan, and as this has come forward in this fiery chariot force that is surrounding Elisha, and Syria doesn't see it, obviously, and they begin to move in to attack, and the, then the servant, then Elisha prays to God and says, strike them blind. And so blind they suddenly become. You can imagine the confusion, the, the craziness. You're in a line, you're marching, you're ready to, to kill all of the people in that vicinity. And you've got all of your, your thoughts. Maybe you're even afraid. All this, and all of a sudden you're blind. Just imagine that Syrian army. And so Elisha goes out to them to talk to them. And he, he does indeed find them. And they are indeed blind. 
right? I mean, that's... This is funny. Not so much the picture, the story. The, the story is just goofy, but the, or the, the picture is just goofy. The story is really funny, right? If you have an army, like, surrounding your town, and they are coming with the foulest intents, plans against you, and you get that on your side, when you say your prayers... When you give God, ask God, hey, what am I going to do with this army right here? What are you going to ask for? Because I'm asking for blood. I'm asking for decimation. I'm asking for vengeance. Because not only has Syria surrounded Dotham to do their worst, but they have already done their worst all over northern Israel. Like, this is a chance for revenge. Let me even take it a step further. This is actually a chance for justice. This is a way to stop and end this army once and for all. God, come in and do away with them. But instead, Elisha, in a stroke of creativity, says, strike him blind. And then he wanders out to them, and he says to them, hey, y'all are in the wrong spot. This isn't where you mean to be. Why don't you follow me, and I'll show you where you ought to go. And I don't know if, I, so I wonder about this blindness. Are they literally like they can't see or are they just not observant? Like what, there's a, some kind of confusion that's come over them. But apparently a whole Syrian army says, all right, dude, why don't you take us somewhere? <laughs> Who does that? What is that? So <laughs> Elisha says, all right, here we go. And he takes them all the way into Samaria and brings them right into the heart of the capital of Israel. And so now those who surrounded Dothan, ready to do their worst, are now surrounded by Israel. And the king asked the most appropriate question possible My father, do I kill them now? In fact, what's beautiful about the Bible, and you have to get this, it's just a style when you're reading your Bible, it's just kind of a stylistic thing they do. Anytime they double it, imagine somebody's pumped. Right? So anytime you see something said twice, they really want it to happen. It's really good news. Like, so he says, my father, may I kill them? May I kill them? Pretty pleased with sugar on top? Because that's what we do, right? He's a king. He's thinking kingly thoughts. He is wrapped up in the fact that these are enemies and I can take them off the table once for all and for good. Don't we kill them now? And Elisha says, are you... What is wrong with you? He doesn't say that, but that's just my paraphrase. He says, set bread and water before them. This is where he takes them, right? From Dothan to Samaria. But set, no, you'll set bread and water before them. It's imaginary bread and water. I forgot to put the pizza and the Chick-fil-A up here. I apologize. That's my fault. Set a feast before them and feed your enemies. Do not, uh, do not hurt them. Do not kill them, but rather bring them in and send them on their way because you don't kill captives, right? That's just, a, that's just a, a practice here. And so they prepare a great feast. They ate, they drank, and he sent them away and they go back to their master and the Syrians did not come into the land of Israel again. What's that? Oh, no, I forgot that part of the story. That's a good question. See, 
You can talk to feed the VBS already. Kids asking great questions. Not that you're a kid, you're a grown woman, but nevertheless. Yes, no, as soon as they walk into Samaria, as soon as they get inside, their blindness is removed. So they're like, here we are, surrounded by the armies of Israel, by the king of Israel. And the king says, I think we kill them now. And they're like, please don't. Anyway. They send them back, uh, they send them back. And so we see in this story a lot of different things. The, the first thing I notice that comes out immediately from this story is the God who has created more than you're aware of. And I think of that as many of you, in fact, probably all of you, are facing something difficult this week. And I just want to say this, that we've told this story for 3,000 years for a purpose, and part of the purpose is that God has more going on than we can even see or conceive. And sometimes really what we need to do in those moments where it feels like the army is about to charge and take your life is we need to pray, God, open my eyes and show me a new path. Because we serve a God who is infinitely creative. And because he is infinitely creative and created us in his image and then imbued us, filled us with his own Holy Spirit through baptism, we now have the same creator spirit in us with that same kind of creative creativity and we need to be the people that begins to think outside of the box much the same way Elisha did God open our eyes show us show us what you've prepared show us the new door show us the heavenly army that I've been blind to this entire time so that I can bring glory to you through victory but I also noticed something special God's love for the Syrians I, let's, not, let's, not, let's not set aside the fact that the Syrians were an invading force that had killed, raped, burned, stolen from northern Israel. They had attacked, physically attacked and harmed God's people. And here God, through Elisha, Elisha, who knows God so well, recognizes, no, the answer is not we need to kill them. But rather, he comes up with this creative way to send them on their way. And I tell you what, when those soldiers went back to Syria, I guarantee you they said, there's a God in Israel, let's not play with this guy. The power of God that has been unveiled in mercy and one of the things that you hear a lot about, uh, about God, especially from from media and things like that, is that the God of the Bible is a bloodthirsty God, a God of violence, a God of horror, a God who, who calls for violence. And here I want you to see this story, which is completely appropriate for God to use violence or for someone to use violence against this army. And instead, God finds a way to save them, which tells me this, that God is interested in saving even the most unsavable. That those who are farthest from God seem to be the ones that God still reaches out to. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus? He says, those of you who are far off and those of you who are near, Jesus came preaching peace. Calling you to God, calling you to forgiveness, calling you to mercy. But then what do we see? We see Elisha, who has walked with God in such intensity, with such closeness, is able then to put that on his own self and creatively bring about salvation, life for all of these people, and a chance for all of these Syrians, now that they are going off to their own land, to remember that there is a God of Israel, perhaps. Perhaps a way for them as well. And so we see the God of mercy, the God of creativity, the God of power, the God of might, unveiled in this story, the ultimate creator who created us. 
As we come to close this morning, the band comes up, I'm reminded of this word from Isaiah, and it, I think it might draw all of this together into something for you to ponder, because I hope this story sticks with you, and I'd be really interested in what you think about it, and what you learn from it, and how the Spirit spoke to you through this story. But I thought of this passage from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down and do not return there but to water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread for our hunger, so shall the word be that goes out from my mouth. And it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. And so, for us, we shall go out in joy and be led in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth their singing, and all of the trees of the field shall clap their hands, and instead of the thorn shall come the cypress, and instead of the myrtle, or the, the briar shall come the myrtle, and then it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the creative, redemptive power of our God displayed in moments like this. So let us give him full glory, honor, faithfulness, and praise. Let us stand as we sing this last song as well.